And if you don't know by now, we intend to have a little fun in the process of our academics around here. And you know, one of the wonderful things about chapel is that every time we have a chapel service, in one way or another, it's unique. I guess those of us who attended Christian institutions, Christian colleges, or even seminaries, have experienced typically that chapel becomes a very dull sort of routine thing with a whole lot of the same kind of stuff time after time. And one of the things that we're committed to is making your chapel time exciting, refreshing, provocative, instructive, confronting, all of those kinds of things. And you're going to find that each time you come to chapel, it's going to be a little bit different. In fact, it's sometimes so different that I don't even have any idea that they'd have the nerve to do what they've just done. But anyway, uh, they do in spite of it. But we are really excited that the Lord is going to use our chapel times to really shape our lives. It's one thing to study God's word in a classroom. It's it's one thing to attend church and hear the preaching of the scriptures and the worship that is there. It's something else in your own environment right here where everybody knows you and where we know what's on your heart to be confronted week in and week out with the things that God's word says to us. So we're going to make this a hopefully a direct hit on our lives as we meet together around the word of God and to celebrate and share and, and pray and worship. And we'll do all kinds of things as we share in these times together. Russ asked me if this particular week as we begin our our chapels, we begin our school year, that I would focus on the subject of worship. And I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. Uh, we'll take it out. I'd like to draw your attention to a portion of Scripture. It's my desire to teach the Word of God as we meet on our chapel hours together, and that's what I intend to do through the week. I want to branch out a little bit, but I want to begin in a key passage, the fourth chapter of John. In talking about the subject of worship, we come to the very heart of the Scripture. I remember reading a few years ago a story that I've never forgotten. I've shared it at our church. It was a story about a... It came out of a Boston newspaper, I think the Boston Globe. It was a story about a newborn baby that was born into a high society family and they had a, a christening party. Apparently there was some kind of formality to christen this little baby and they invited all their wealthy guests over to this estate in order to celebrate the christening of this new little one. The guests came in and one of the servants repeatedly took the coats of the guests because it was in the winter and took them into the master bedroom and kept putting them on the bed and more guests would come and more coats and finally they were piled high on the master bedroom bed, a very large bed. After the party had gone on for about an hour, um, somebody said, uh, where's the baby? We'd certainly like to see the baby and that's why we're here. And In a moment of panic, the mother who hadn't thought about it at all rushed because she was not used to having a child rushed to the master bedroom where she had laid the little baby in the middle of the bed to find that it had been smothered to death by the coats of the guests it's incredible to think about the fact that you could be smothered to death by the indifference and disregard of the people who came to celebrate your birth but I sometimes think to myself that in all of the activity going on in the church, somewhere Jesus Christ has been smothered out in terms of personal attention. And what I want us to focus on in this discussion of worship is how we as individuals can give our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ in the matter of personal worship. I'm not so concerned about worship as a corporate experience, although we'll talk about that later in the week. I'm much more concerned about worship as a personal commitment. 
And I believe that there's no higher calling for any of us than that we should worship God, that we should worship Christ. Let's read John 4, 20 to 24. You follow along as I read and we'll see that this is the setting for our series. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to a harlot, a prostitute, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, a Samaritan woman, a half-breed, a Jew uh, sometime in her past had intermingled with Gentiles and created uh, the half-breeds that became known as the Samaritans. She was despised, and not only for her lack of morality, but for her mixed racial character. But Jesus met with her and loved her and won her to himself. And part of the conversation includes this section on worship. Beginning in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. She's pointing to Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans still worship. And there are still several hundred of them alive in the world today. Pure Samaritan stock and still worshipping in the same way they did in the time of Christ. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say, that is you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Ten times in those verses, the word worship is used in one form or another. The heart of it all, would you notice, comes at the end of verse 23. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. If you're a Christian, that's basically what you are. You are a worshiper of God. My favorite definition of a Christian is in Philippians 3. I don't know if you've ever read it and had it stick in your mind. Listen to Philippians 3.3. 3. For we are the true circumcision. Now, what Paul means to say there is you Jews have a mark and that's a physical circumcision. You have been physically circumcised, and that's your mark. That marks you as to your religion. But it's only an outward and physical thing. He says, we are the true circumcision. That is, we have our mark also. Ours is not a physical mark. Here is ours. We are those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What a great definition of a Christian. We worship God in the power of the Spirit. We rejoice in Christ Jesus and we have no confidence in our flesh. We are the true worshipers. It might even be best if we called ourselves worshipers. Worshipers. I don't think I've ever heard anybody designate Christians as true worshipers and that's exactly what we are. Now what do we mean by worship? Let's talk a little about that just by way of introduction. To worship someone very simply means to, to give them honor, put it simply. To give honor to a superior being, that's what worship is. To give honor to a superior being. Now, honor could also be respect, adoration, admiration, or even fear. It could be awe. All of those would be synonyms of one kind or another. 
And the superior being is God himself. So to worship means to give honor to a superior being, namely God. The key word in the New Testament means to kiss toward. And it had to do with bowing down and kissing the feet of a monarch. So what you're really doing is humbling yourself in the presence of God. You're ascribing the worthiness that belongs to God. The old English word was worthship, from which worship comes. It means to give worth to God. So we then, by virtue of our faith in Christ, by virtue of God's saving grace in our lives, have been called to spend the rest of our existence ascribing honor, glory, praise, and worth to God. That's what worship means. Now, what you have to keep in mind about this is that worship is premised on the fact that you're giving something to God. God has given you salvation in Christ and blessed you with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians 1, 3. And in turn, you give God worship all the days of your life in time and eternity. You often hear people come to church and maybe the sermon wasn't that hot. Maybe the music wasn't that great. And somebody will say, well, I didn't get anything out of it. You might even come to chapel and say, well, I didn't get anything out of that. Who said you were supposed to get anything out of it? Worship is not getting. Worship is what? It's giving. The question is not what did you get out of the sermon. The question is what did you give to God of the homage and honor and adoration and praise of your heart. That's the issue. Now, we live in a, in a very self-indulgent society. We live in a, in a time and a day when everybody is after all they can get. And it's hard to get people to understand that worship is not about getting. It's about what? Giving. When is the last time you went to a church service? And before you walked in the door, you spent a few moments on your knees and you said, Lord God... Somehow, when I go to this service, would you please stimulate me in a way that I can give you glory? You ever asked that of the Lord? When's the last time you walked into a chapel and said, Lord, I want somehow to be able to give you honor today. I want to bring you praise. I want to lift up my heart in thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done in my life. That's worship. But we become so bound up in what we get out of everything that we lose sight of the opportunity to give. It's as if... We are priests going into the presence of God to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And I dare say that for most of us, we probably never have had that thought. Never. That we should offer God something. But that's what worship really is. And God is very concerned about worship. In Exodus, let me just give you a couple of illustrations. In Exodus chapter 30 and verse 34, a fascinating scripture. Just listen to this. Then the Lord said to Moses, and the Lord is giving him all these prescriptions for the worship of Israel. Told him how to build the tabernacle and how to do all the ceremonies in it and so forth. But in Exodus chapter 30, the Lord says to Moses, take for yourself spices. And the spices named are Stacti and Annika and Galbanum, and I don't know what those are. Spices with pure frankincense, and there'll be an equal part of each. So you've got four things, frankincense, Galbanum, Annika, and Stacti, forms of spices. One part of each... Make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. What does he mean, pure and holy, set apart? And you shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting that is in the tabernacle where I meet with you, and it shall be most holy to you. In other words, I want a perfume in there. I want an incense rising up. And I want it to be made like this. This is the recipe. And then this. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportion for yourselves. 
It shall be holy to the Lord. Now get this. Whoever shall make any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. You know what that means? Killed. God says, I want you to make a perfume. And I want you to put that perfume in the holy place of the tabernacle. And I want that perfume to rise up in that tabernacle. I want it to be a perfume that nobody else ever uses. And if I find that anybody in the nation has used that kind of mixture to make perfume for himself or herself, I'll kill him. You say, what in the world is going on here? Well, the issue is this. The incense and the perfume was a symbol. A symbol of worship. As that perfume rose, as that incense rose, the smoke of that incense might rise as an emblem of the rising of the heart of worship. Now, if you were to take that thing and make it for yourself, you would be taking something that belonged exclusively to whom? To God. It's a symbol that worship belongs only to God. And if you worship any other than the true God, you have broken which commandment? What's the first commandment? So have no other gods, including yourself. So it's symbolizing that incense. As the incense and the fragrance rises out of that, so worship rises out of the heart of man. It is exclusively for God, and you never want to mingle anything exclusively for God with what you offer to men. And that's the point of the symbol. God is very serious about this matter of worship. Now let me make a distinction for you between ministry and worship, okay? That's really the twofold aspect of our Christian life. Let me see if I can draw some parallels. We know about ministry. The other night you had kind of a ministry opportunity to sign up for all kinds of ministries. Let me define ministry for you, all right? Ministry is that activity which flows from God, starting with God, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, through the human instrument. Did you get that? Ministry comes from God, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, through the human instrument. It is that activity which God energizes in us to reach out. Worship is the very opposite. Worship is that activity which goes up from the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit through the mediation of the Son to the Father. It's just the opposite. They're symbolized in the Old Testament. The prophet was the one who spoke for God. The priest was the one who spoke to God. The prophet was one who received the message from God, gave it to the people. The priest was the one who received the needs of the people and took them to God. And the Old Testament honors the prophet and honors the priest because it honors ministry and it honors worship. And we in our lives have to have that balance of ministry and worship. It's just a very basic thing. I remember reading about an explorer who was in the upper Amazon and... uh, got together a tribe of native people out of the upper Amazon jungle to take his goods. He was moving a rather large contingent of people exploring some area and they were carrying this tremendous amount of stuff on their back and they were being pushed at extraordinary speed. And finally, the third day, all the natives sat down and just dumped the load. And the man who was leading the exploration couldn't get them to move at all. And finally, the chief came up and said, they cannot go any further. To which the explorer replied, why? And he said, they're waiting for their souls to catch up with their bodies. And I thought of that in reference to worship. Some of us are really into ministry, but we've left our soul way behind. And there's no balance in our spiritual experience. Because we're into activity, we understand the flow of activity, but we don't understand what it is to worship 
the living God. Now to take it a step further, it's my own personal conviction that you can support from Scripture that worship is even more important. Did you get that? It's more important than ministry. Let me give you an illustration of that. Look at Luke for a moment. Chapter 10. Verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, Luke 10:38 says, Jesus entered a certain village. And a woman named Martha welcomed her into her home. And she had a sister, Mary. You know Martha and Mary. And Mary was listening to the Lord's word seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. You get the picture? Jesus comes in the house and Mary just goes and just sits at his feet and just adores him. And Martha's beating around, whipping up the bagels and the cream cheese and whatever else is going on. And Martha comes in and says, hey, hey, I'm doing all the work and Mary's just sitting there. Please tell her to help me. And the Lord in verse 41 answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. Really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part. Ooh, which is better, ministry or worship? Worship. You remember in Isaiah 6, the angels had six wings. The seraphim that Isaiah saw had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they did hover. The Hebrew word is like celestial helicopters waiting to do the service that God gave them. Six wings. Two covered the face because as created beings, they couldn't look on the full glory of God without being consumed. Two covered their feet because the place wherein they were was holy. And two to fly to serve. And I remind you that of the six wings, four were related to worship and two were related to what? Service. How do we get these things so confused? How is that we can be so many Marthas and so few Marys? Where is worship in our lives? Where is the priority of praise and adoration? That's what we want to talk about. The psalmist said in Psalm 45, 1, My heart is overflowing with a good matter. The Hebrew word for overflowing means bubbling up. His heart was so hot it was just bubbling up and flowing out. Do you, do you ever experience that? So overwhelmed with your love for God that it just boils over. It just bubbles up. That's the essence of worship. And that's what we want to talk about. This morning, just a little bit about the importance of worship. Okay? And each day we'll take a little different look at this same passage. Now go back to John 4. The importance of worship. And just some general thoughts this morning before we dig more deeply into the text. 
Worship is important for several reasons, okay? I want you to file these somewhere, take down whatever the Lord lays on your heart, hold on to these great truths. Worship is important for several reasons. Reason number one, the scripture calls for worship, okay? Scripture calls for worship. You can go all the way back to Exodus, or you can look at the passage right in front of us. Which says the Father seeks true worshipers. Scripture calls for worship. You go back into Exodus chapter 20. And you remember the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses inscribed on stone. Let me just read the first part of that wonderful list in Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other, what? Gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh, God calls for worship to him and him alone. Worship was the first commandment. Jesus said, this is the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's worship. Loving, adoring God with all your faculties. That's the first and greatest commandment. When God ordained worship, in a formal sense, He gave His people a tabernacle. And the book of Exodus tells about the tabernacle and how it was to be built. And when it was completed in the 40th chapter, the Shekinah glory of God came out of heaven, which had been leading the children of Israel as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It descended down, dwelt in the tent of the congregation, as it's called. And God was, in a sense, saying, I'm coming to reside here. All the people were lined around it. The first group around the tabernacle were the priests. The second group were the Levites who assisted the priests. And then came all the tribes so that all of life focused in on this tabernacle and in the center of the tabernacle was the glory of God who indwelt that place. And the whole existence of the nation was to worship God. That was the purpose of everything. To give Him glory, to give Him praise, to give Him adoration. That's why God gave them that tabernacle. The special place of worship is given seven chapters and 243 verses to describe it. By the way, there are only 31 verses to describe creation. 243 verses to describe worship. Worship was vital. You could be a soldier when you were 20 years old, according to Numbers 1-3. You could be a Levite, that is, you could attend to the priest. You weren't a priest, but you could be a Levite when you were 25. But according to Numbers 4, you couldn't be a priest until you were 30, because it was such a serious thing to lead the people in worship. That was the priority. It called for the highest levels of maturity. And do you remember the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu? Do you remember the story of them? They had trained all their life to reach the point when they could be priests. And the first day in the priesthood, they, I believe the text indicates, drank too much and became inebriated. To some extent, they were looped. And here they were trying to function as priests and they offered God strange fire, the text says, and God killed them on the spot. He killed them on the spot. And somebody's going to say, hey, 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 this is my first day in the ministry. Give me a break, I'll get better, you know. 
I mean, I thought about that often. If, if God had evaluated my ministry on my first sermon, I'd be dead. But God killed them. Why? Because the priesthood was such a sacred trust. The rebellion of Korah, they entered into the priesthood, thought they could function as priests even though they didn't have the priestly right, and the ground opened and swallowed them. And King Uzziah thought he was so invincible as a king that he could function as a priest. He tried to do what the priest did, and God gave him leprosy, and he died. I mean, this is serious business. To lead the people to God as a priest was very, very serious. Later on, when Israel was established in the land, God gave them the command to build a temple, which they did. And again, the whole of the temple, it sat on the Mount Zion, the highest point in Jerusalem there. And it was there for the whole of the nation to look to because there was the focal point again of worship. Come there to worship your God. The burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1, you remember all the offerings given in Leviticus? The burnt offering was the, was the first offering. Uh, it was even known as the ascending offering because unlike the other offerings, the burnt offering was totally consumed. Some of the other offerings, part was consumed and part was set aside. But the burnt offering was totally consumed. Why? Because it was intended to be all for God. Some of the other offerings, part would be given to the priest, but not that one. It was all for God and sacrifice and offering began with a recognition that everything belonged to God. Devoted to God alone. In Psalm 95, we read this in verses 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. That's repeated many places. Scripture then enjoins on us to worship. We see it in the Old Testament. And now for a moment, let's look at it in the New. In Romans chapter 12, I want to call your attention to two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, a familiar text to you. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's an excellent translation of that. Your spiritual worship. And you are to present your body to God... As a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to him. Listen, if you brought a lamb in the Old Testament that wasn't without spot and without blemish, it wasn't acceptable, right? You couldn't give God anything you wanted. You had to bring an acceptable offering. And the same is true in our own experience. We have to give God that which is acceptable to him. And if you offer him your sin-filled life, that's not acceptable. So what Paul is saying in Romans 12 is that you're a priest. The priesthood is eliminated. When Jesus died on the cross and the veil of the temple was rent and the Holy of Holies, as it were, was split wide open for everybody to see, the priesthood came to a screeching halt. That is the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Testament. And we all are now a kingdom and priests, aren't we, as Peter says. So we all have access. And like the priest of old, you remember when the high priest on the Day of Atonement went in to offer his sacrifice and spread the blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies? He had to go through all kinds of ceremonial washing and sacrificing to make sure that he was pure. And he had, he had bells on his robe. You know why? Because if the bells stopped tinkling inside the Holy of Holies, everybody would know he was dead. And why was he dead if he died indeed? Because he had gone in there without having dealt with his own sin. 
So the high priest, before he ever went in, took care of his own cleansing, his own washing, his own purification, and prepared in his own heart and his own life before God. He took the blood on behalf of the whole nation and sprinkled it on the mercy seat. And as long as they heard the bells tinkling at the foot of his robe, they knew he was still alive and that God had accepted the sacrifice. It was such a holy and sacred thing. And anybody who violated the law of the priesthood or the office of the priesthood was dead on the spot. In fact, even the people whose job was to carry the Ark of the Covenant, the Kohathites, if they didn't do it right, would die on the spot. As happened to Uzzah, when he put the Ark on a cart and it started to fall off and he put his hand out and he was dead on the spot. The, the positive and happy and wonderful side of all of us being priests is we all have access. The fearful side is that you better be sure your life is right when you go in, right? You better be sure your life is right. You see, that's why when you go to the Lord's table, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, you better examine yourself. Because if you go rushing in to worship God and take the bread and the cup and there's sin in your life, he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself. And Paul says, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead because you've done that. Serious. You see, the, the wonderful side of being priests is we have access. The fearful side of being priests is we run the risk of rushing into the presence of God unprepared. And that could be, could be fatal. We want to be sure we have a prepared heart. So we are called to be spiritual priests. And if I'm going to offer my praise to God and my worship, I'm going to do it out of a pure heart. I'm going to confess my sin and be sure I'm right with him. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 12. Look at 1 Peter for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 5. And here again he speaks to the church. And he says, you are built up, or being built up actually, as a spiritual house... You have become a holy priesthood. This is reiterating the same idea. You are a holy priesthood. What does that mean? Holy means set apart to God. And the purpose of your priesthood is so that you may offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, we're in the business of offering up spiritual sacrifices. The first spiritual sacrifice coming out of Romans 12 is to give God your what? Your body as a living sacrifice. Everything you offer God is a sacrifice. Your praise is a sacrifice. In Hebrews it says, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, even the fruit of your lips, which is praise to God. Whatever you give God is your spiritual sacrifice. You go as a priest. When you come to, to a worship time in chapel, when you go to the church for a worship on the Lord's Day morning, you go in there as a priest. You are going in to commune with the living, eternal God. And because you understand the seriousness of that, and you understand your function as a priest, you want to make sure that your life is pure, and you go in there not for what you can get, but for what you can what? Give. To offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. That's what it means to be a priest. So worship, you see, is essential. Scripture calls for it. It identifies us even as priests. Another thought 
along the line of the importance of worship. Not only does scripture enjoin us to worship and identify us as priests whose task it is to worship, but all of life is affected by how we worship. And we sort of saw that. How you worship will affect your life. Let me just speak to this for a moment. There are unacceptable ways to worship. Okay? Let me just identify them for you. Okay? I'll give you maybe four of them. How not to worship God. Okay? Or how not to worship. First of all, it is sinful to worship false gods. That's very simple. It is a sin to worship any other than the true God. You said never do that. Well, let me take it a step further. It is a sin to worship the God that you think is the true God if in fact he's not the true God. So what do you mean by that? I mean that there are a lot of people who are thinking they're worshiping God, but the God they're worshiping is the God of their own imagination and not the true God, and that's an idol. That's why in John 4, Jesus said you must worship the Father in spirit and in what? Truth. In other words, you have to worship the true God for who he is. As Tozer said many years ago, it is idolatry for you to worship a God who is less than the true God. And frankly, many people have their own identification for God. They've made a God, as philosophers used to say, in their own image. Somebody said God created man in his own image and man returned the favor. And there are lots of people who think they worship God, but they don't worship the true God because they don't worship God as he is identified in Scripture. In Romans chapter 1, it says, When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, but were empty in their thoughts and imaginations and created idols and so forth and so There are all kinds of idols. You can worship what you think to be God, and that's an idol if it isn't the true God, defined by the attributes that are given in Scripture. You can worship anything and it can become your God. A curious passage that might um, interest you is in Job 31. Just listen, this is very, very interesting. Job 31, 24. If I have put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied God above. In other words, if I worship money, I've denied the true God. If I worship nature, I've denied the true God. Money is an idol. Nature can be an idol. People say, well, I worship God in the trees and I worship the God of the ocean and the mountain. That's idolatry. Habakkuk, one, similar, speaks of the Chaldeans. And it says, this is amazing, they're into fishing. It says, so gather them together in their own fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they offer a sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. They worship their fishing net. Incredible. You can worship anything. They bow down and burn incense to a fishing net. You can worship anything in life. 
But anything other than the true God is idolatry. Idolatry. And the Old Testament, of course, continuously speaks against this. So first of all, unacceptable worship is worshiping other than the true God. Secondly, unacceptable worship is worshiping the true God in the wrong way. The true God in the wrong way. You say, what do you mean by that? Do you remember back in um, Exodus 32? Do you remember Moses went up on the mount to get the law? And who did he leave in charge of the children of Israel? Remember? His brother Aaron. And what was Aaron doing down there? Aaron was leading an orgy, wasn't he? Moses went up to get the law of God and Aaron was down there. And the people, it says, decided to make a God. Verse 1 of 32. Come, make us a God, they said to Aaron, who will go up before us as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. We did not know what has become of him. Boy, they're a pretty impatient group. Make us a new God. And Aaron said to them, all right. Aaron was a wimp, to put it mildly. Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Everybody give up. You think earrings on guys are new? No, no, no. That's not new. Bring them all in. So all the people tore off the gold rings in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And listen to what they said. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You know what they were doing? They were worshiping the true God in an utterly impure form. They had reduced the true God to a golden calf. And Aaron said, tomorrow we'll have a feast to the Lord. Incredible. So the next day they had this big bash. And they ate and drank and played and... God says, you corrupted yourselves. You turned aside. You made for yourselves a molten calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel. This isn't your God. You can't reduce God to some image in your own mind. You can't reduce God to some idol. So you can worship the wrong God or you can worship the right God in the wrong way. Thirdly, and this kind of follows up on these wrong ways to worship. You can worship the true God by your own standard. What I mean by that is you design the way you're going to worship. The true God in the true form, but worship in the wrong manner. What do you mean by that? Well, God in the scripture has laid down some principles for how he is to be worshipped. If you violate those principles, it costs you your life. Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, I mentioned earlier, they were worshiping the true God in his true form, but they designed to do it in a way that was not the way God revealed, and God killed them on the spot. I think about Saul. Saul worshiped God in a self-styled way. You remember God said, don't take any spoil, don't take any animals or anything, and Saul out of the battle took all those animals and... And the prophet came to him and said, what are you doing? He says, oh, 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 I got them all to offer God. I, I, lots of sacrifices. Yeah. And he said, nobody from your loins will ever be king again. And he cursed his seed. You cannot worship the wrong God. You cannot worship the right God in the wrong form. And you cannot worship the right God in the right form in the wrong way. God has identified how you're to worship. And we're going to get into that this week. But there's very clear teaching as to how you are to worship God. 
In Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and he says, You have substituted the traditions of men for the commandments of God. You're worshiping God by means of your own invented tradition and not by revelation. All that's unacceptable. Now let me give you a fourth unacceptable way. You could worship the right God in the right form, in the right way, with the wrong attitude. With the wrong attitude. And that's equally unacceptable to God. Equally unacceptable. Hypocritical attitude. Hypocritical. Remember how in the Old Testament it says, their lips draw near, but their hearts are what? Far away. Their lips draw near, their hearts are far away. I go back so often in my thinking to Amos, the prophet. And the prophet Amos has such a straightforward confrontation of this hypocritical religion. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, he says, listen to this. I hate, this is God talking, I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. You know, the Lord probably says it today. I hate your church services. I despise your wretched Sunday morning worship. It sickens me. And even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. To put it in a contemporary... You may sing your songs and take your offerings and pray your prayers. It is... It is Totally repulsive to me. I will not look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Let me see some virtue. See, Let me see some godliness in your life. That's the issue. The rest of the stuff is so hypocritical, it sickens me. That was Malachi. Malachi, the prophet who cries out to his people and says, you've despised the Lord. You literally have despised the Lord. You presented defiled food to me on my altar. You presented the blind for sacrifice. You presented the lame and the sick. In other words, you know what they were doing? So, oh, we're going to worship God. So we'll give them the food we don't want. We'll give them the animals that are sick and blind and lame that we wouldn't want to eat anyway. The deformed. Will the Lord receive this, he says in verse 9? Of course not. You have defiled my name because you offer me the worst. You feign or you pretend that you love me, but your heart is far from me. So you see, the scripture calls us to worship. This is the definition of what we're all about. We're true worshipers. We're to spend our lives and all of eternity worshiping the Lord. That means giving Him glory and giving Him honor. And we must be careful that we're not giving Him unacceptable worship. We want to be sure we're worshiping the true God in His true form according to how we are to worship Him as revealed in Scripture with a right heart attitude. 
then that worship is acceptable to him. That's acceptable worship. Let me close with Psalm 24. Verse 1 through 6. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Then this, listen carefully. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? Who can worship? Who can go into the presence of God? He who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face. Even Jacob. This is the true Israel. This is the true people of God who have clean hands. That means a pure life, a pure heart. That means right motives. That's the acceptable worshiper. So first and foremost, people, we're worshipers. And we want to be those who are acceptable worshipers. That's my prayer for you this year. And I'm just going to believe, God, that before these five days are through, we're going to have a whole new perspective on what we're really all about and the role we have to fill as priests of the living God. Let's pray together.